one of the things that I told you was that I wasn't going to give you a history lesson. I lied. Okay, I didn't lie because I didn't give you a history lesson last week. But this week, we are going to start off for the rest of this month with going ahead and showing how God's hand was on this nation. After the British evacuated Boston in March 17th, 1776, General George Washington guessed correctly at their next target, which would be New York. By mid-April, Washington had marched 19,000 soldiers to lower Manhattan. He strengthened the batteries and guarded the harbor and constructed forts in the northern Manhattan and on the Brooklyn Heights across the East River on Long Island. Washington waited throughout June for the British to appear, hoping that somehow his undisciplined troops could hold off an attack, which he certainly, he was certain, would come to Manhattan. In early July, 400 British ships with 32,000 men, commanded by General William Howe, arrived at Staten Island. When Howe offered a pardon to the rebels, Washington answered, those who have committed no fault want no pardon. While he was still convinced that the British would attack Manhattan, he sent even more troops into Brooklyn. Early on the morning of August 27th, British soldiers fired on the American pickets stationed near the Red Lion Tavern at a crossroads in Brooklyn. Washington hurried across the East River from Manhattan, but could do little more than observe the fight from a redoubt or a temporary fortification on Cobble Hill. General Solomon's men fought bravely, but were cut down by Hessian artillery and bayonets. General Howe halted the fighting by early afternoon and directed his men to start digging trenches around the American positions on the next day. But before they could be surrounded, Washington ordered his men to leave and evacuate Long Island. From late that evening, August 29th, to the dawn on the following morning, Washington watched as 9,000 Continentals were rowed back to Manhattan. He still has more to go. As the sun came up, a fog miraculously descended on the remaining men crossing the river. They all made it across safely. According to eyewitnesses, George Washington was the last man to leave Brooklyn. Do you think that fog was just a coincidence? Coincidence? You see, I'm going to show you time and time again how God intervened in our nation's history. But think about this. The world's largest army. The British Navy ruled the seas. The saying was that the sun never sets on the English Empire. Yet how a ragtag bunch of farmers in 13 colonies would go ahead and bring the English Empire to its knees. God's hand was on the birth of our nation, and it still reaches over us today. So today, we're going to go ahead and look at our scripture, and we're going to see faithful and evil servants. We're going to see that Christ didn't come to give peace on earth, but to cause division. We're going to look at judgment and the fact, I say again, the fact that Jesus is coming again. And really, really soon. <laughs> the title of today's message, Discern the Time. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, when I make the statement that Jesus is returning and soon, Lord, uh, I'm not far off. Your word says that no man knows the day nor the hour. But Lord, we can discern the times. We can look and see the evil that's in our world. Just as as I played the trailer, Lord, recognizing the deplorable state and how much the enemy has got its talents into this country. So God, I pray that you would be with us today, that you would stir and move hearts and minds. Lord, that we would be open to hearing what you have to say to us today. And Lord, then that we would be moved to action, that we would not just be on the sidelines, but we would be in the game. God, because that's what your word calls us to do. Lord, I pray as we delve into the scriptures, Lord, etch it upon our hearts. But God, if there's anything of man, let it fall upon deaf ears. Know how much we love you, we thank you, and it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said... Amen, amen, and amen. All right, if there's anybody who needs a Bible, raise your hand, and one of the ushers will come around and give you one. We're going to be starting in Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Luke 12, 35. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning. So I want you guys to think back to Jesus' time. They didn't really wear pants or shirts like we do nowadays, but instead it was a tunic and a cloak. Remember Matthew 540 states, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And it would have looked something like this. And you can see how the cloak goes over the tunic. Now, any of you ladies will attest to the fact that walking upstairs or attempting to run in a long dress is next to impossible, unless you hike it up, right? By saying, let your waist be girded, it was a picture of readiness. You see, they would have to pull up the hem of their robe so that they could run. Now, lamps burning was also that picture of readiness. That lamp was something that was used at night or a lot of times during the day, as we discussed a few weeks ago, right? You don't put your lamp in a secret place under a basket. The wicks would be trimmed. There would be oil in the lamp. And this reminds me of another parable that Jesus said. Turn with me to Matthew 25, and we're going to take a look at verses 1 through 13. Matthew 25, 1 through 13. Starting in verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for the lamps are, our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to sell uh, to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those that were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. 
Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now notice they were all set apart and called to give light. But also notice, five of them had their lamps empty. They had no oil. Now oil in the Bible represents the Holy Spirit, yes. So in essence, there was no evidence that these five were saved. How do we know that they weren't saved? Because they were outside. And in verse 12, where it says, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Please, Lord, let nobody in here ever hear those words. So part of this is a little scary. in the fact that those five thought that they were saved. Is the Holy Spirit in your life? Let's be like the first five, with our lamps burning. Amen? Yes. Back to our passage. Jesus was calling the disciples to be ready for service. That calling was not only to his disciples, as we're going to see here in a few, but to all people, to you and to me. And that brings us to our first point. Be ready for service. Be ready for service. Continuing in verse 36. And you yourself be like men who wait for their master when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Have you ever gone shopping, been out all day long, or you were at work all day long, and you came home, and you go to open the door, and it's locked? Then you look inside, and you see your child sitting there on the couch watching TV. So you knock. And you're getting ready. You could have gotten out your keys and opened up the door yourself. But you're like, you know what? By the time I get out my keys and everything like that, they're already going to be here and the door will get opened. So you wait. And you wait. And you wait. And you look again. And they're still sitting there with their eyes glued to the TV. They haven't moved. So you knock a little bit more forcefully next time. And then finally, they get that acknowledgement. They come to the door just as you had gotten your keys out into order to open it yourself. You see, we don't want to be like that when our master returns, sidetracked, distract, not focusing on the things that are important. We need to be ready. Let me ask you this. When Jesus returns, when the rapture comes, how do you want to be found? Reading your Bible? Serving in the ministry? sitting in church on a Sunday or a Wednesday. Or you could be having a beer with one of your buddies or shopping online for the best price of the newest Gucci or Louis Vuitton purse. <laughs> Let us have the heart of Isaiah. Here am I, send me. So that when he comes, we'll be found like those men waiting for their master. Verse 37. Blessed are those servant servants whom the master, when he comes, will find watching. So first we see here, we are supposed to be watching. In other words, anticipating, waiting for the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And second, this text encourages me because Jesus says blessed or happy is the one who the Lord finds simply watching. The one who realized that this life is not where it's all at. This life is empty apart from him. If you're struggling from a relationship that's not working out, finances that aren't coming in, or physical pain that's ailing you, blessed 
are you? Because you are totally aware of the emptiness of this world. And you look forward to heaven all the more. You know, I heard it once said, is there any problem the rapture won't fix? Think about it. That's what Jesus is talking about here. The rapture, speaking to the crowd, they would have understood this perfectly. Do you believe the rapture is coming? Do you believe it has to come? Do you want to know why we can have faith in Jesus that he will come before the wrath of God is poured out during the tribulation? Then come out to tonight's fireside chat as we are going to delve into the rapture and marriage and what those two things have in common. Continuing in verse 37. Assuredly, I say to you that he will gird himself and have them sit down to eat and will come and serve them. The one watching for the Lord's coming will be blessed because Jesus will gird himself with a towel and serve him, take care of him, and bless him. He did that to the disciples in the upper room at the Last Supper. He also does this to Peter at the beach. Peter was cold and weary, and Jesus serves him a hot and a hearty breakfast. So even in a time of Peter's disobedience in his own life, even when he was fishing, when he was supposed to be in Jerusalem waiting, he's found, he finds in the hand of Jesus the very thing he'd been searching for all night long. We see that in John 21, 9. And Jesus will be there for you too. Verse 38. And if he should come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. So this verse speaks of Christ coming back at an unusually late hour. The exact time of the scripture depends kind of on which system that, they, that you used. The Roman system in the second and third watch would have been from 9 p.m. to 3 a.m. But the Jewish method would have been from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. Now, Luke usually uses the Roman. We see that similarity in Acts 12.4. But since Jesus is speaking, the Jewish system is also possible. The point is that being ever vigilant is necessary and we need to be ready for service. When I was stationed over in Korea, I wasn't necessarily walking with our Lord the way that I should have been. And we went out and we partied pretty hard one night and I woke up the next morning and I had the worst hangover. I go to formation and I tell my section sergeant, hey, I'm not doing anything today. And uh, he's, like, he's like, look, we got a lot of work to do, Rodman. I said, I know, I'm hungover. I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so he says, you know what? Here, just go down to the motor pool. There's a truck that's being serviced there. Help them out. I said, I'll go, but I'm not helping. So I go down to the motor pool, and I see our truck. I get with the mechanic, and he goes, okay. He goes, there's just a couple things that we got to do. I say, hey, I am so hungover. I'm not doing anything. He goes, just sit over there, okay? Sit over there, and if I need you, I'll call on you. So, so, fine. So I'm sitting there, and a little bit later, he goes ahead, and he says, hey, Rodman, come over. I need to break these lug nuts. And I'm like, did you not hear what I said? I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so, so he's like, please just help me with this one thing, okay? And I said, all right, all right, fine. So I get over there. We go to start breaking the lug nuts. My platoon sergeant walks in. He goes, dang it, look at that. Rodman, one of the hardest working men in the army. I tell you, that guy doesn't slack. 
folks, let's not be like the old me. <laughs> but let's be ready for service. Verse 39. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So two points about this. First, Jesus changes the illustration slightly, comparing the watch to now protecting against a robbery. He says, if you had knowledge of the time you were going to be broken into, it would lead to vigilance. But since the time is not known, constant readiness is essential. But secondly, Jesus states, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. You know, I think too many Christians have this false sense, this false belief that we're not supposed to defend ourselves. That we're just supposed to be quiet, not get involved, not be involved in the fights. You know, Adam, Jesus said, turn the other cheek. Yeah, but not when somebody's actually punching you in the face, okay? Now, let me get this straight. Men, you're lying in bed. You hear the front door get broken into. Your family is in the house. Are you just going to lay there and go, oh, well, might as well turn the other cheek? No, right? You're going to reach into the stand. You're going to pull out your gun, your flashlight. Okay, the gun from your securely locked uh, safe location, right? You're going to get your flashlight, and you are going to make sure that not your wife, not your daughter, not your son has a single finger laid upon them. Can I get an amen? Thank you. Yes. Yes. Jesus approves of self-defense, and so do I. You know, Paul states in Romans 12, 8, if it is possible, as much depends on you, live peaceably with all men. If it is possible. If it's not, don't allow your house to get broken into. Be vigilant and ready. Verse 40. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Be ready. Do we see a reoccurring theme here? We need to be ready spiritually, mentally, physically, emotionally, and tactically. Wait, what? Ta tactically? What do you think of when I say tactically? You think of like soldiers or maybe a SWAT team, right, about to make entry into a room. Do you know what the definition of tactical is? Adroit in planning or maneuvering to accomplish a purpose. Now, do you know what adroit means? No, neither did I. I had to look that up. <laughs> it means showing skill, cleverness, or resourcefulness in handling situations. I came up with this a few years back. Now, Jesus always said the right thing at the right time to the right person. He was adroit. We should be adroit in all aspects of our lives. And when you look at those aspects, the four parts that make up a person, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, you'll find that in any college sociology program. But we need to be tactical in all areas of our lives. Adroit. That way, when challenges come up, will have the resourcefulness to handle that situation. Now, notice the statement, for the Son of Man is coming. Not if the Son of Man comes, but Jesus is coming. That brings us to our second point today. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. The rapture isn't just this 
pie in the sky, made up events. The disciples got it. Jesus himself told us, for the Son of Man is coming. As such, let's be expectant and ready for his return. Verse 41. Then Peter said to him, Lord, do you speak to this, this parable to us or only to us or to all people? So Peter's asking, is it just for us, Lord, or everybody that's here? Now, if I were Jesus, I would have just said, yes. <laughs> because ultimately, he will speak to both. And I love that Jesus doesn't answer the question directly. What do you think he did? He tells another story, another parable. So instead of answering directly, he describes a variety of different servants. We see the servants of those who belong to the master and have their stewardship uh, evaluated. Um, we see this in the, in the parallel in Luke uh, 19 verses 11 through 27 in the parable of the Minas. Jesus gives several responses from faithfulness to blatant disobedience. And we're about to see in verses 42 through 48, the issue is we need to be those who live our lives in a way that looks for and takes seriously the return of Jesus. 1 John 2.28 states, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Verse 42. And the Lord said, who then is faithful and wise stewards, whom his master will make ruler over his household to give them their portion of food in due season? Blessed is the servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Blessed or happy is the one living in expectation that the son of man will come. He might even come right now. We're still here? All right, then I'll keep going on with a sermon. <laughs> Verse 44. Truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Wouldn't that be crazy if we were all taken up just right then and there? <laughs> so stinking cool. So, truly I say to you that he will make him ruler over all that he has. Here, Jesus hints at the fact that those are, who are watching for his return presently in the coming age will hold positions of authority. I've said it before. You look in Revelation where it says that we will rule and reign with Jesus. In other words, what we do now affects what we'll do in heaven. So start investing now. Maybe there's interests or desires that God has placed on your heart that haven't quite been worked out or realized. I believe it's very likely that when we get to heaven, those will be the very areas which will come into full fullness and fruition in your life. Verse 45. But if that servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and be drunk. You see, the result of saying that the Lord can't come today will be a twofold tendency, brutality and carnality. How would we treat one another if we truly believed that Jesus was coming within the next 24 hours? You see, if I'm not thinking of that mindset, I only get angry and I get my lash out. I'll beat up on people because I forget that Jesus could very well come today. Remember, I asked you, what do you want to be doing when he comes back? Not an awareness of, now, now, awareness is, 
Awareness of the rapture is not escapism. It's quite the opposite. Jesus said a, rela- um, a realization of his return leads one to right living and rewards eternally. Verse 46. The master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him, at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in two and appoint him his position with the unbelievers. And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know yet committed things deserving of stripes shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Now, I don't believe the misguided servants at the end here are doomed to hell like the first ones. Rather, I believe the implication is that they simply lose out on what they could have enjoyed eternally had they been living their life truly for the Lord. And we concluded here with, for everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. That brings us to our third point. You have been given much. You have been given much. Jesus just described the different types of servants. Which ones are you? You're here in church today. For that I say yes and amen. And as it says in Hebrews 10, verses 24 and 25, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. But do you come here on Wednesday nights? What about Monday night Bible study? Men's ministry, women's ministry. Now, I say these things not to condemn, but to encourage. Because we can all use godly improvements in our lives, right? Yes and amen. There's none of us who have arrived. So as such, let's keep moving forward for the prize. Pushing forward. We've been given so much. And it's not just Pastor Adam that's saying this or encouraging, but God's word. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be required. Verse 49. I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Whoa, 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 wait a second, Jesus. Uh, Wait just a minute here. What happened to the whole turn the other cheek thing and Prince of Peace and our Lord of Compassion? Let's take a look at this. Fire is an image associated with God's judgment. We see in Jeremiah 23, verse 29, Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? In Jeremiah 5, 14, it states, Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, because you speak this word, behold, I will make my words in your mouth fire, and this people would, and it shall devour them. You see, Jesus' Jesus' coming brings judgment on those who refuse to accept him. And he divides the believers from the faithless. Though Jesus was ready for judgment of humankind, there were some more things that needed to happen. Verse 50. But But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how distressed I am till it is accomplished. 
speaking of the baptism of his crucifixion. Jesus reaffirms his commitment to go to the cross, to finish the work of our salvation, to save our souls. Verse 51, do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. From now on, five in, a ha- in one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. In In regards to this teaching, uh, Jesus' words serve as a warning that he's coming to bring division. And maybe there's some in your family who even say to you, do you really believe this Jesus is going to be coming again? That you're going to be raptured and go up to heaven? You know, rapture isn't even in the Bible. You're crazy. Take heart. Jesus said that this would happen. Look, folks, by naming the name of Jesus, we will face trials and tribulations. We will be persecuted. We will be hated because they first hated Jesus. So if we're under the false pretenses of thinking that because we accepted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that everything is going to be rainbows and butterflies, it's not what God's word says. Clearly, we see here, there will be a division here on the earth. And ultimately, those that don't accept Jesus as Savior, there will be a division of the sheep and the goats in the final judgment. We're going to speak more on judgment in just a bit. Let's see if Jesus has any other good news for us. Verse 54. Then he also said to the multitudes, Whenever you see a cloud rising out of the west, immediately you say, A shower is coming. And so it is. And when you see the south wind blow, you say, there will be hot weather. And there is. Hypocrites. You can discern the face of the sky and of the earth, but how is it you do not discern this time? So, initially, Jesus was speaking to the disciples. Here now, he's speaking to all the people, the multitudes. Remember the saying, red sky at night, a sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning... A sailor's warning. You see, we can discern the weather, no problem. But you can't see the Messiah when he's standing right in front of you, Jesus says. First, what does, the, what does Jesus call the multitudes? Hypocrites! <laughs> Do you think Jesus has a small problem with hypocrisy? We keep seeing this all throughout our lessons, right? And why do you think it says in Matthew 5, 37, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Do you know what? I don't know about you guys, but there's nothing more distasteful, nothing more bothersome than a person that, who says, do what I say and not as I do. Like maybe, oh, I don't know, a governor who's filmed at the French Laundry restaurant in the middle of COVID during lockdowns without a mask when everyone else has to stay home. Do you think his kids were kept home, locked down, not allowed to go to their private schools? And it doesn't matter party lines either. There's plenty of politicians who run on conservative values. And when the time to vote comes up, they do completely opposite of what their campaign promises were. Don't be a hypocrite. So coming back to our passage, I find it amazing that we can put a man on the moon, but we don't recognize the spiritual battles going on in this world. 
Elon Musk can show us how to get to the stars, but not how to get to heaven. So while our understanding is expanding with technology, we're left in the dark spiritually. Although those of Jesus' day uh, were able to, they weren't able to send men to the moon, they did study the skies. And in doing so, they came pretty good at predicting the weather, especially out on the Sea of Galilee, but not so good at understanding the climate of their times. You see, they should have known that the Messiah was among them because Micah 5.2 declared that he would be born in Bethlehem. And so, hadn't that so-called king been born in Bethlehem 33 years earlier? In fact, so much so that it intimidated Herod. And he ordered the killing of boys two years old and under. They should have known that the Messiah was among them because they heard rumors of a rabbi from Galilee who was conceived illegitimately. For didn't Isaiah declare centuries earlier that when the Messiah came, the sign would be that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son? Isaiah 7, 14. They should have known the Messiah was among them for the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years before a deliverer was raised up in order to lead them to the promised land. I have a blank screen. Ah, oh, come on. I'm going to try one thing, and then I'm just going to get crazy on you all. All right. Let's see what we have here. Okay, we put a man on the moon, right? We already did that. Killing a boy is two years under. Yep, check. Isaiah 7, 14. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. They should have known the Messiah was coming when he rode into Jerusalem. And before looking over Jerusalem, he says these words. If you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that made for you, for your peace. This was prophesied by Daniel. Daniel 9.25 states, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to build Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and three score and two weeks. Now, a hepatad is a week or being seven years. So, 69 heptads would be 483 years. It was on March 445 BC that Artaxerxes gave the order to restore and build Jerusalem. And exactly 173,880 days or 483 years later, on April 6th, AD 32, Jesus rode into Jerusalem. No wonder, he said, you should have known this is your day. Verse 57. Yes, 
And why even of yourselves do you not judge what is right? When you go with the adversity of the magistrate, make an effort along the way to settle with him, lest he drag you to the judge. The judge delivered, uh, deliver you to the officer and the officer throw you in, into prison. I tell you, you shall not depart from there till you have paid every last mite. So as we wrap up, this begs the question. As Christians, should we judge others? We just read, do you not judge what is right? Let me give you a scenario. A man leaves his wife for another woman. The wife informs the church of what has just happened. She wants to see her marriage restored, but it will require repentance and change. They reach out to the man in an attempt to call him to repentance. Ultimately, they want to see him turn away from committing adultery and find healing and forgiveness in Christ. He refuses and says, how dare you judge me? Who are you to judge me? The Bible says, judge not lest ye be judged. After recovering from hearing the king's English with such vitriol, you begin to wonder, does he have a point or not? Jesus does tell us not to judge in that statement. Should Christians ever judge? I think the key to answering this is in Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Turn with me there if you would. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. It starts off, do not judge or you will be judged. You see, people like to stop right there. But let's continue. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrites. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you see then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's the key in this passage. Jesus is telling us that there is a manner of judging others which is deadly. So in other words, if we use weights and measures with discrepancies when judging my brother, i.e., well, his sin is bigger than mine, then we need to be careful. If I use harsh judgments towards others, Jesus is telling us that God will use the same weights and standards with us. And I believe the main point is that focus in verse 5. Hypocritical judgment is solved by looking at ourselves first. Did you notice though? Jesus says, then you will see clearly to remove the speck. This shows that making a judgment is not wrong. It's a hypocritical judgment, which Jesus is against. And a hypocritical judgment is what we might say as being judgmental. So, Daryl is playing right field with his work softball team. He's dropped the third pop fly in a row. Daryl isn't having a very good day in the field. See, that's making a judgment. Daryl isn't having a very good day in the field because he's lazy and unfocused bum who, it's obvious, he doesn't spend any time practicing on his own. See, that's judgmental. 
The Bible encourages us to make sound judgments. In John 7, 24, Jesus states, do not judge by mere appearances, but judge with right judgment. In this regards, Christians should make judgments. But then that begs the question, when should Christians judge? Remember first, Christians should never be judgmental. We should also never judge the motives of other peoples. We know this from 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Ultimately, uh, judgment is not left up to us, but God. The spiritual that's the scriptures do speak of certain ways that we should judge as Christians. Number one, we should judge ourselves. In Matthew 7, he says we should look for the speck in our own eye. That's what Jesus says. And in 1 Corinthians 11.31, it states, For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. We also see the benefit of judging others. And the Corinthians seem to be having a problem judging each other, neglecting to look at themselves first. And this made them blind to their own failings and so unable to make the necessary corrections. The point here then is that if we analyze ourselves, if we make corrections, then we'll repent and not incur God's judgment. In the book, the first letter to the Corinthians by Sikampa and Rosner, they said this. The point is that something as simple as more self-evaluation, more self-examination could help us avoid divine judgment by leading us to catch and correct ourselves before God decided to take matters into his own hands and bringing about a very undesirable external motivation that might lead us to finally correct what we had consistently ignored. And as we realize that we all fall short of the glory of our Lord, then we can truly rely upon God's grace. Number two, we should judge the actions of those inside the church. Again, this doesn't mean harshly judge, nor does this mean hypocritically judge, or to even cast ultimate judgments upon people. We also know that we are not called to judge the motives of the heart. We're called to make a judgment upon actions. So the initial scenario of the man having the affair, that would fall under this category. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, he says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetousness or extortioners or idolaters since you would, have to, since you would need to go out of this world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or reviler or a drunkard or extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judgment, judging those who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourself the evil person. Yes, we can make discernments about the world. That's the second way in which we are to judge. But 
this type of judgment, which Paul is mentioning here, it's a type of judgment that could lead to a purging exclusively for those who are within the church. Scripture tells us that we must make these kind of judgments. Of course, it could go really south. Let me ask you this. If I committed adultery, should I still be up in this pulpit? No. It's pretty clear. I'm going outside of the rules and what God's word says as far as my sin. And I would need to step down. Of course, we could go really far as far as judging the church, and uh, we could try to wipe out all the weak Christians in an effort to stamp out any spark of sin. But let's remember, restoration is always the goal. Although Paul doesn't tell us that we, uh, he does tell us that we should judge those inside of the church, as a Christian, we're never called to be judgmental. We are called to judge rightly. May God help us do this all. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for the fact that we get to come together to be in your house. And Lord, I do pray that you would come quickly. That Jesus, you would just rapture each and every one of us and all of our problems all of our challenges, all the trials and tribulations that we're going through. Yes, it would be but a mere fairy tale. So God, as you have not yet come, as we recognize that you are long-suffering, I pray that you would be with each and every one of us today. Lord, that as we would take your scriptures, truly, Lord, we would be living them. God, be by our side. Strengthen us for what lies ahead. Because no doubt, The times are going to get much darker, Lord. Times are going to get much more challenging. And as we name the name of Jesus as our Savior, I pray, Lord, keep us strong and in the fight. And it is in Jesus' precious name that we pray. Amen.